Thanks, Harry. Those words are a prayer that as we come to God's word, we would hear his living word for us. So we're going to read this morning, first of all, from the book of James, and we're reading in chapter 2, the first 17 verses. Let's hear God's word together. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, "You, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Amen. Now we're going to read from the gospel, from the gospel of Luke chapter 1, the famous verses Verse 46, Mary's song as she visits Elizabeth. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. 
His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word that challenges us, your word that simply here speaks to us so very clearly. And as we reflect on it today, we ask, Lord, that you would challenge us as ones who look in a mirror and see themselves and then go to be transformed by it. So we would look into your word and by your Holy Spirit, it would transform us. Amen. Excuse me a minute. This isn't a children's address. This is just me wanting water. Thanks. Two men walk into a church meeting. One is obviously affluent. He's well-spoken. He's educated. And the other is obviously poor. He's shabbily dressed. Maybe he's a little bit smelly. How are they treated? The answer in almost every culture, and certainly ours, is differently. One has us thinking, ah, that'd be a useful new member. Maybe they'd, maybe they'd join us. And you can see the treasurer is already out with a gift aid form, isn't he? Or she. Thinking about how that person might contribute to the life of the church. And the other one, well, we want to be welcoming to folk like that, like that. But watch your handbags, ladies, just in case. Our treatment is different. Now, in James's day, it might have been more pronounced because it was a society that was very much stratified. stratified. There were the slaves at the bottom of the heap. Then there was the vast majority of people who were just getting by just getting by. Some of them not quite, and they were falling into poverty, and other ones just a little bit above. They were keeping body and soul together. And then there was a massive gap until you got to the very, very few that were affluent. There was really, in Roman and Greco-Roman society, no what we'd call middle class. You were either very rich, or you were just about getting by, or you weren't getting by. And it was expected in the ancient world that you would treat the rich differently. That wasn't just what people did out of prejudice. It was actually what they felt was the right thing to do. They were obviously blessed by the gods. But even in our egalitarian society, we discriminate. Our celebrity culture makes us treat certain people differently. We'll have a moderator here in a few weeks' time, and I, I know instinctively what we would do for moderators, isn't it? We get out the Guild China. Do you have Guild China here? Yeah, Guild China, because it's a moderator. But for everybody else, it's a polystyrene cup. You know, we do it. We instinctively treat people differently. 
Here comes James. If you say to the man in the fine clothes, here's a good seat, and to the poor man, you stand here, or you sit on the floor, or whatever is culturally different, you've discriminated, and says, James, you have become evil judges with evil thoughts. Now, it's interesting, this image of of, of evil judges, because this carries a huge amount of teaching in the Old Testament, because, of course, a judge in every culture is supposed to look at two people, and as he judges their case, he's supposed to treat them equally. He's supposed to listen to what the truth is and not to their appearances. But, of course, what happens in, in, in those days and in many days and in many cultures is a judge looks at two people and thinks, what's in it for me? Which one's going to give me a bribe? Which one will be grateful to me and will help me and, 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 and help my family later on in the world as it really is? And that's what it means to be a judge with evil thoughts, thoughts of me rather than of what I can do that's right. But here's the trouble. In so many of our relationships, we do exactly the same thing. We look at people and we think, what's in it for me? Are these people I would like to hang out with? Are these people who would make me feel good? Are these the sort of folk I'd want to invite around to my house and and have a friendship with? Are these the people who will help me in life? What can they give to me? What are my needs? And other people we look at and think they can't give me much. Maybe I'll give them something because that's what you're supposed to do. The natural culture of our society is that we think about ourselves. But here comes James, and what James is saying right through this letter is, if we are going to be Christians, then it has to change the way that we live. It has to change the culture that we operate by. It has to change the value scheme we work by. And it has to result in how we act, our deeds in the world, like looking into that mirror. As we look into that mirror, we begin to notice all the cultural assumptions that we have taken on, just like they would in the stratified world of the Greco-Roman world. We look at the things that we do, the culture that we have, and we think, is that the Word of God? Is that how we are supposed to act in light of the gospel? Last week, we were very much looking at what that meant for us. Today, this passage is beginning to look a bit more at what does it mean for the culture of the people of God? What does it mean for us as a community together? James starts off this part of the letter with with just a, a very bold statement. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. Now, here's the thing. We can skip over that quickly to the command, we must not show favoritism. But stop and think about what James has just said before he got there, because this is explosive. My brothers, my sisters, who is James? We looked a little bit at this in previous weeks, that James is almost certainly the brother of Jesus. He's the son of Mary and Joseph. And here he is as he writes this letter where he has not paraded his status as Jesus' brother. And he looks at us, he looks at those that he's writing to, and he says, my 
brothers. We've got so used to that language in, in, in Christian life of talking about our brothers and sisters that we've forgotten just how explosive it is to look at people for whom the only connection is our faith in Jesus Christ and call them our siblings, to put them up there with our own brothers and sisters. And this comes from this idea that if we are Christians, if we are born into the family of Jesus Christ, then we have been adopted. We have a new father that Jesus has taught us about, that we have to call God our father. We are his children, not just because we're created by him, but because we are recreated by him. We are baptized into him. We are adopted into his family. And suddenly, as we do that, it gives us a whole load of new brothers and sisters, ones we don't know. In fact, we've got a billion of them across the world today. We're part of this huge family. And this is explosive. You see, as the New Testament is using these terms for the very first time, it's talking to a new church which is full of real social divisions. Racial divisions, we're very much aware of that in our own culture and in our own times about black and white, but in the ancient world it was about Jews and Gentiles that hadn't previously even eaten together. It was about rich and poor, as we talked about there was a massive gap between the poor and the rich. They lived in two completely different worlds, and here they are in the same church. It was about slaves and their masters. Now think about that for a minute, let it blow your mind. A slave and a master, one who has no rights, one who completely has all the rights over them, both become Christians and walk into a church, and they have to call each other brother. Think about the practical implications of that. Men and women in a highly patriarchal society starting to talk about one another as brother and sister. It does actually blow things away completely. If you, if you, if you look at the tiny little book of Philemon, which Paul writes, and Philemon is a, it's a, it's a terrific little book because Paul is writing to a guy called Philemon who has become a Christian, uh, and he has a little church in his house, and he has a slave, which was pretty common for, most, for a lot of fairly wealthy householders. They had a, a slave. The slave runs away, um, and Paul finds him. And Paul is returning this slave to him. But as Paul writes to Philemon, he says this. He says, I return him no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is dear to me, but dearer to you now, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Now, it is true, people will say, you know, the Bible condones slavery. The New Testament just accepts that it's there, but it still puts this explosive language of saying that there's slave and free in the church, they're brothers. And it was as if that put a time bomb, a ticking time bomb that began to show slavery for all it was. And it was interesting that as Christianity rose in the Roman world, so slavery tailed off until it took a while, but slavery vanished within a few centuries. It's interesting that that concept of the slave as a brother has twice in an history undermined the institution of slavery too slowly on both occasions, but it did it twice because it was the same language that was used of slavery of, of the black peoples, the African peoples, 
centuries later. The point is this. If we believe these gospel principles, they must start to change the culture of the way that we act. And there's more of that because, of course, James doesn't just say, brothers and sisters, we've done one word here in Greek. He goes on to say, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, we, we, sort, of, we sort of just rush over that, don't we, because we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. But what James is asking here is, do you believe in Jesus? What do you know about Jesus? You know the stories that you've been taught about Jesus. James knows them very well. He was there. The one who loved the outcast that no one wanted. The one who touched the leper that no one wanted. The one who went with a foreigner that no one would like. The one who was there for the scumbag that everyone fears. The one that was there for the thief that everyone hates. The one that was there for the prostitute that everyone shunned. The one that was there for the children that everyone hushed. The one that called the poor fisherman that no one was thinking about. The Jesus who said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are you believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? How does that begin to impinge not just your doctrine or what you trust in or, or, or what you think he's going to do for you if you go to heaven or, or anything like that? How does that impinge on how you live if you believe in the Jesus of the Gospels? How can you say you believe in that? How can you call him Lord if that doesn't utterly change the way that you react to people all the time? All the time. And then, <laughs> that word, we, we, we can brush it off, glorious. Now, that word doesn't just mean nice or pretty. That word, again, has a whole biblical resonance, doesn't it? The glory of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, what was the glory of the Lord? The glory of the Lord was the presence of God Himself. And when the glory of the Lord turned up, it turned up in all God's holiness, all God's power, all God's strength. It was the glory of the Lord that thundered to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was the glory of the Lord that led the people of Israel with the, with the, the pillar of fire through the wilderness. It was the glory of the Lord that existed in the holy of holies of the temple. And when it turned up, when God's glory turned up, the world changed. An angel of the Lord appeared to the man. The glory of the Lord shone upon them, and they were terrified. And here was the Christian testimony. When they thought about this glory of the Lord that was right there through the Old Testament, they said, we saw it in Jesus. That's the whole doctrine of the incarnation, that God's glory was in Jesus. John says, as we saw him in his gospel, we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Paul says, for the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. You see what this is saying? Now think about this. This is James saying, the glory of the Lord that had shone in the heart of the temple, the glory of the Lord that had been proclaimed by angels on the field, was in my brother, the carpenter from Nazareth. The Word made flesh. The peasant from the hills of Galilee, the backwater, the one the Romans killed as a common criminal, the scum of the earth. Isaiah said, we esteemed him not. 
how can you believe this and it not utterly transform the people you look at? And, and there's more than that. If, if, you, if you just skip a few verses to verse 5, James goes on, listen, my brothers and sisters, has God not chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and be the heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? It's a simple question, but it's a theological question. What is God doing from the beginning of creation in his redemption plan? He's choosing the nobodies and the ne'er-do-wells and doing something amazing for them. The, the, the Jewish people said it, we were nothing. We were the least powerful people on earth. And God chose us in his graciousness. And we see it in Jesus choosing these disciples. He doesn't choose rich people with rings and power and, and folk in the court of Herod. He chooses fishermen, nobodies. James looks at the church, this poor church we said in Jerusalem and scattered through other places, and he said he's still doing the same thing, isn't he? Paul will say, not many of you were noble, not many of you were powerful, not many of you had, had, had riches, but God chose the nothings, the nobodies. Look around the church today, you see God's still choosing strange people. Isn't he? Where did James learn this? James learned this from one of the, the greatest theologians that ever lived. His mum. We started there. As we read the words of the Magnificat, she got it right away, didn't she? The God who turns the rich away empty and sends the poor, full, the hungry. The God who brings down the powerful from their thrones and lifts up the nobodies and the ne'er-do-wells and the nothings. That's what God's about. And here's what James is saying. If you know that this is what God's doing and you know that this is who God's choosing, how can you do the opposite? It's got to transform you. The values of the kingdom must shape the church. In about two weeks' time, our general assembly meets. And one of the things that we're all on tenderhooks about is that the general assembly has got some very difficult decisions to make because there are a real shortage of ministers, even worse than we told you a few years ago. Not only is there a shortage of ministers, but there's a real shortage of money. And what the church is going to have to do is redeploy its ministers. And that means that in quite a lot of places where they've had ministers, they're not going to get ministers. And we're waiting on the General Assembly telling us what the principles are for that deployment through presbyteries. But here's the thing. I don't know what they'll do, but I know one thing that I hope that they will do, because we did it last time. And that is to say we took a deliberate decision that in the poorest communities of Scotland, we would give a double portion of our resources. A double portion. Why? Well, we wouldn't be doing it because it made missionary sense or because we had a clever strategy or because we thought it would yield results. We took it as a theological decision because that's the nature of God. That's the nature of the gospel. Now, there's an awful lot we might knock about the Church of Scotland, but I am, proud's the wrong word, pleased 
by that principle. How it works out is another story. Did we get it right? That's another story. But we do it because it's the right thing to do. And when we make decisions as Christians, we should always make them in the light of our theology, of what we believe. It doesn't matter whether it's a business meeting we run. It doesn't matter whether it's how we administer our church finance or we use our buildings. We don't act because that's how the world's culture or charitable trustees are supposed to or any of those things. We go back and we say, who are we? What are we called? And what is God doing? And how do I reflect that? When you are treated badly by someone, and you want to lash out and say, you won't treat me like that, you should be going back to the Bible and saying, how does it call me to live? What are my values? Who am I about? When we are tempted to be angry at someone, we think, what is my God like? My God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. When we think about how we, we, we look at our children and we, we discipline them or, or, or we love them, we think about how does my father love me? This should impact on all our lives, whether it's a, man, a, a meeting of a management group or it's a meeting of a Kirk session or whatever we do in church, embodying those things that we believe in. How do we follow the example of Jesus? How do we express the care of our God for creation? How do we act in a way that is redeeming and saving and good and sacrificial and cross-shaped and bringing the resurrection into the world? James will go on to say, oops, this. If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles on just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do commit adultery but do not commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. What's James saying here? He's saying, look, if you read the Old Testament, if you read the Bible, get the thing, it's about all of life. And sometimes Christians have said, oh, there's these sort of special sins. We're going to speak out against sexual sins, adultery, that's bad, you know, out the door. Or we're going to speak about those things that evil people do that we don't do. Look at the whole thing. Look at every bit of it. Look at how the royal law, that's Jesus summing up the Messiah, summing up the heart of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Know and believe all of this. Look at Jesus' example. Now, of course, when it comes to favoritism, we might look at the culture of our day and say, yeah, well, you know what? Our culture tells us this stuff anyway. We don't really need Jesus. It tells us discrimination is wrong. It tells us to treat people equally and all the rest of it. It tells us to be tolerant of different people in all different situations. But love is more than tolerance. The problem with tolerance is you can tolerate people by ignoring them. You can tolerate people by saying, well, don't you upset me and I won't upset you. Don't you care about what I'm doing and I won't care about what you're doing and we'll just all rub along fine. That's the cultural value of our day, isn't it? But love is more than tolerance. Because God's love is never indifferent and so we shouldn't be. God is caring, passionate, engaged, involved. He gets angry when things are wrong. He wants to put them right. He wants to change and transform people and that's how we should be too 
You know, it's possible to treat everybody equally by treating everybody equally badly. You know, treat the rich man and the poor man just the same in our church. We ignore both of them. <laughs> well, we, they're not welcome. We don't know them, strangers. But that's not God's love, is it? What's this got to do with adultery and murder? Well, the biggest problem with commandments is that we pick and choose. You know, I, I don't commit adultery. I, I don't commit murder. I'm, I'm a good person. Whole God's law. With all that it teaches about compassion to the poor. With all it teaches about mercy and forgiveness. With all it teaches about the God who seeks the lost and the exiled and the, the people astray. You grab for all of that. And you find that you break it down and you fall as much as the people that you go, oh, what about them? You can't have a church that batters people for adultery while it glorifies war. You can't have a church that gets uptight about swearing on TV while it tolerates gossip in the guild. Sorry, guild. Not picking on you. We all do it. You can't have a church that talks about one thing and ignores another. And you see, when we do this, we, we do realize that we are all lawbreakers. The law begins to condemn us all. We begin to realize that we are fallen. Except here is the thing. Here is the gospel. When we realize that we are judged by the law, we find that this word of God also gives freedom because it brings us to mercy. It begins by bringing us to the point that we say that we have to cast ourselves on the love of God. We have to cast ourselves on the forgiveness of God. We have to ask Him for what we do not deserve. We have to come to the cross and to the feet of it, and we have to say, Lord, take this sin from me you who have died for my sins on the cross, that I might know your grace and your mercy. And suddenly, from being those crushed lawbreakers, we become those people who say, I have been made a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have found the glory of the Lord. I have found these things to be true. I have experienced the mercy of God. And here is what James is saying at this point. If you have grasped mercy... For you, then that again transforms how you will behave towards others. For you will take mercy rather than condemnation. You will not judge and discriminate because you will love with your whole heart because that is the way that you have been loved. You will take risks when people don't deserve your love. Folks, oh, they don't deserve. Yes, that's the whole point of grace, isn't it? If we understand the gospel and we realize that we do not deserve God's grace, but the nature of God is gracious and merciful, then we act towards others as the humblest people on earth. We'll want to forgive because we've been forgiven. We'll want to be patient because God has been patient with us. We will want to give regardless of whether they deserve it because God has given us when we didn't deserve it. We will write no one off because God didn't write me off. And as we believe these things, we will live these things and there will be no separation between our faith and our deeds.
You know, it's often said that people end up looking like their dogs, doesn't, isn't it? I don't know if that's true of you. Can't tell behind the masks. But one thing that is definitely true is that we end up looking like our gods. And if you have a vision of God that is judgmental and hard and writes people off, then you will be someone who is hard and judgmental and writes people off. But if you have found a God in Jesus Christ who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love, and you found that that's how God has acted towards you, then you will act that way towards others. It rubs off. We become like the Jesus that we follow and the God that we love. So here's the homework. Consider this in the week ahead. What does it mean for you to believe in Jesus this week? How will it direct your response to those you meet? How will a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ respond? What is it in the character of God and his gospel that you need to apply to the decisions that you need to make this week? Are you someone who knows that mercy has triumphed over judgment in your life? Thanks be to you, our Lord Jesus Christ, for the benefits you've given us, for the pains and insults that you have borne us, most merciful Redeemer, friend and brother, that we may know you more clearly, love you more dearly, follow you more nearly, day by day. Let's pray. Lord, we have heard your word. We have been reminded of the gospel truth. We have seen your glory in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray just now that by your grace, you would help us to live and be graceful. Love as we are loved. Forgive as we have been forgiven. Proclaim that which we have found to be good and true. Serve, for you have served us. We pray, Lord, not just that you would change us, but as we begin to build back our church, that at the heart of it would be this culture of open hearts living out the gospel in all of its meaning, in our care for creation, in our love for the poor, in our inclusion of each other. So we pray for our church fellowship, Lord. We pray for young and for old, for those that have grown in faith in these days and those that have found themselves wandering. Gather us back, we pray, whether that's physically online, unite us together. We pray particularly for those that may have found their hearts and their love just getting a little colder in these days of lockdown, that you would help us to love them back. We pray for our elders and our decision makers. And Lord, we pray for your church as it thinks about the shape of our mission in Scotland, that you would help it to shape and to love and to be Jesus in our society. And Lord, we pray for Scotland just now. We pray this week, this week of election. We thank you for our democracy, for our freedoms. 
We ask that you would bless those, whatever parties are elected, that they would have hearts that want to work together, that they would have hearts that want to set the right priorities, that they would have hearts that want to see wounds healed. And those that have suffered much in these last months, rebuilt as we build together, looking to the weakest. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.